Last evening, I noticed that some of you, perhaps new here, um, were taking notes on the Corrado's uh, Dharma talk. Uh, let me briefly give you a sense of what, at least one view of what a Dharma talk is about, what it's attempts to accomplish. It's not about accumulating more information. Not at all. Uh, there's nothing that I'll be saying tonight that you can't get in hundreds of books, tapes, videos, other teachers, and probably said uh, in very eloquent and diverse ways. Um, <clears throat> While you're taking notes, you're not fully attentive. And I know the ideas may seem precious and never thought of that one and wow and so forth. Uh, particularly when you're on retreat, almost anything will sound good because it's been quiet all day. <laughs> and you'll laugh at almost anything. <laughs> I understand. I'm the same. Um, The words, and <clears throat> tonight I'd like to talk about a particular sutta of the Buddhas, but the words expressed, the words of the sutta, they're pointers. Uh, although it will be about the Bodhikarata Sutta, uh, it's about us. The value of the sutra is that it's pointing to us so that the most profound Dharma words are just pointers. Granted, we have to understand what they're pointing at, so, translations, clarification, commentary are helpful. And I hope I can provide some of that this evening and probably another evening or so. Uh, but finally, uh, the Dharma talk is not different than the rest of the day in terms of practice. The challenge is to do mindful listening. And I know at this point, it's been a hot day, uh, what we would far prefer to do is just be entertained. Uh, just be passive and just fill me up with some interesting Dharma ideas. Um, see if you can, in spite of that uh, urge, if it's there, uh, pay attention in the same spirit that you were doing anything else, walking, sitting, in a light way. Don't make it into something grim and joyless. Uh, I'm doing the same thing. I'm really attempting to say things that I hope will move the retreat. When we give talks, for example, if everyone, uh, we, we hear some of you through, through discussions or in, and interviews during the day, uh, if there's a lot of discouragement, then perhaps the talk needs a certain angle to kind of perk us all up. Uh, if people are half asleep, we need something to wake us up. If people are all agitated and upset, then maybe we need a nice, calming, comforting talk. Uh, you can never come up with a talk that will be suitable for everyone, but the whole point is to, to move the retreat along, for us to keep uh, developing wakefulness again and again and again. So the talk is just part of that. Um, The Bodhikarata Sutta, uh, there are many titles to, uh, to it. The one, what I feel the subject matter has to do with time. Uh, it has to do with 
what, I, I, what can be called real time, living in real time. Uh, about a month or two ago, listening to the news, actually hearing it over a period of, of time, the word real time was used whenever the financial, there'd be financial news on CNN, and I didn't know what it meant. And it was something about uh, counselors who were helping you with your portfolio, and they, something good about this company because they were, their advice was coming in real time. To the best of my understanding, it has a lot to do with being as up-to-date as possible, almost to the minute, with computers now, so that the advice you get on your stocks, if I understand it correctly, uh, isn't, well, yesterday, it, based on yesterday or this past month, it can be hot, you know, really recent. Now, whether I have the right understanding of that or not, real time is a perfectly good term. Um, I would like to put it in the context, though, as I, I see all the teachings in this context, of self-knowledge, self-understanding, self-knowing. Uh, the world that we left behind temporarily, and to some degree we brought it with us, as you know, uh, is a difficult world, I think, as uh, everyone knows it. Um, and there are many solutions to it, proposed solutions, political and diplomatic and so forth. And clearly there may be a bias on my part because of what I devote most of my life to. But it seems to me that uh, self-understanding, self-knowledge is the missing piece. That is, when the mind doesn't understand itself and is confused, it leads to tremendous sorrow, confusion, conflict, and which often ends in a family or in a friendship or in a, a society or in war between countries. Uh, contrary to a lot of the last frontiers that I've seen, the, the oceans are the last frontier, the sky is the last frontier, the, the micro, um, uh, micro world is the last frontier. There's no question, there's an enormous amount to be learned from diving deep into the ocean. These have all made covers of different magazines from time to time. And the sky is the limit, you know, who knows how far we can go. And the, the microscopic world that we have powerful uh, technology to study and to experiment with is another seemingly boundless world. But you don't often hear about another one, which is the mind. And it's the one that seems sorely missing. And perhaps it's the one that's needed most. That is, we seem to be interested in learning about everything and anything but ourselves rather strange. So we can land on the moon, which is an incredible accomplishment, coordination of tremendous resources, time, finance, intelligence, you, thousands of people working together. So many things going on uh, testify to the brilliance of the human mind, of, of what, what human beings can do if they set themselves in a certain direction. But when we arrived on the moon, as one Korean monk said to me, okay, that's great, but are you any happier? You know, we found you can get to the moon. It's quite, an, we felt good. We planted a flag, the Russians flag, you know, same old thing. But um, now what? So we're just fools on the moon, causing havoc on the moon. 
and maybe it'll be another planet and we'll cause havoc there. Uh, so the work you're doing uh, has to do with disarmament, I think, a lot of it. I'm not trying to politicize our gathering. I'm happy to be here, too, away from CNN. Uh, because all the kinds of disarmament that are being talked about, for the most part, are pathetic. The real disarmament is inner disarmament. Unless people start disarming themselves of all of their uh, urges that wind up in violence, stemming from ignorance, at least in the Buddha's view of things, and it seems sensible to me, uh, how can the world really improve? Any number of conferences and treaties and, and so forth. So uh, the work that you're doing, maybe this is a pep talk because it's so hot, but I feel it's also true, in addition to being a pep talk. So self-knowing, I prefer the term self-knowing to self-knowledge. It's a verb. Self-knowing hap happens in the active present. Self-knowledge, uh, which we can use too interchangeably, and I fall into it and use it, is something you accumulate. It's, like, it's knowledge. It's uh, all kinds of interesting insights, information, relationships about between pieces of information. Extraordinarily useful. Much of the progress that I just mentioned comes from that, science and so forth. All kinds of uh, wonderful things come from the accumulation of knowledge. And that can be applied to yourself. That is, you can more and more come to, to pick up understandings and insights about yourself. Uh, are any of you keeping a secret diary of the story of me and my insights on the seven days? Uh, I mean, it's not a police state here. You, you know, but I would... Um, discarded it. It's not going to be of much use. Unless you want to publish it, my, my week and whatever. Um, that kind of knowledge is just the uh, continuation, the perpetuation, the refinement, the revision of the story of me and my life, starring me, supported by me, directed by me, music by me, literary, the critic me, uh, subtitles of necessary me, popcorn sold by me in the audience, mainly me, because people get tired of hearing it. Okay, If you want another chapter, me is a Vipassana yogi. It sounds maybe acute and funny, but a lot of the questions are about that. Do you know how many of you in the discussions this morning refer, it's like you have a record of the retreats you've been on, as if you're wearing combat ribbons, you know, for this three-month retreat, that seven-day retreat, that retreat was more calm. That happened in the fall of 75. This, the other retreat, we had a very horrible winter. This, uh, and then comparing. By this retreat, I should be more calm by now. It took me three days, the last one, but I've been practicing for quite a while. It shouldn't take me this long. Uh, is that another chapter in the story of me and my life? Uh, so self-knowing is quite different. Self-knowing happens in the active present. You see something, you understand it, and that's the end of its value. Its value is in the living, in that moment. Now, it does, some of it may, you may reflect on and realize, oh, that's a big piece of understanding, and it may help you, help you in the future. But for the most part, it's fresh. It's original. It's not 
it's because as you accumulate more knowledge, then you keep seeing what's happening now through those eyes, through yesterday's eyes. And so self-knowing, uh, in our sense, let's say in the, in the Vipassana sense, certainly at the beginning, uh, is very, very similar to self-knowing that anyone would do, any reasonably intelligent person who wanted to take stock of themselves. You start to pay attention. You start, even if you don't pay attention, if you just live, we tend to learn some things about ourselves. You learn about the needs of the body. You learn about uh, how you do things. You learn how you live if you pay attention. That's a very important one. Please do it. How you actually live. Here as well as home. Actually, not as a notion or an idea. And if you're willing to do that, life teaches you and it gives extraordinary teachings. And you begin to see how you talk and walk and eat and uh, how you respond to this, that, and the other. Uh, I've looked at it, and the, 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 the term that helps me understand it best is relationship. But I don't mean to, ex- to mean that exclusively human relationship. Relationship to the heat. How are we going to, supposedly it's going to be even more hot tomorrow. Uh, how do we relate to discomfort or heat or cold? How do we relate to being given a room that's not exactly to our liking? How do we relate to our body? How do we relate to nature? So that our life is made up of the way in which we seem to react to things, objects, to nature, uh, to other people, to ourselves, to the productions of our own mind. Self-knowing is beginning to pay attention and beginning to see how, how that's working for you. It's, you're beginning to understand essentially how your mind works. And if your mind works, is wired in certain ways that cause suffering, and whose isn't, we wouldn't be here then it stands to reason that it's at least plausible that if you start to pay attention rather than ignore ignorance, that you might start to understand how certain things seem to turn out uh, in not such a good way again and again and again. And we begin to see other possibilities of living, new horizons, and of course, hopefully the meditative one, that you'll see that. Um, Tonight, it's a vast subject. A lot of it at the beginning overlaps with what you might learn in the good psychotherapy, good psychoanalysis. Uh, but I think at a certain point it departs rather drastically from that. Uh, it's different. Uh, a lot of what we learn, and it's useful, is actually seeing the ways of the self. It's finding out who we are. And, that, and just using that in ordinary sense. Forget it as if you never heard what the Buddha said. But as the practice goes deeper, what you're finding out is who you aren't. More and more what you're finding out is who you're not. And it turns out we're not hardly anything. And it's good news. Uh, It leads to immense vitality and love, genuine love. A flowering of goodness that we were talking about Saturday evening. Genuine, not self-righteous, not moralistic. Uh, Just, you're not even trying it to do it. Um, And it's a quiet passion. Uh, I stole this from Corrado, I have to admit. I was going to say borrow, but the truth is I kept it. (laughs) And I keep using it 
He used it once, and that was the end. Do you use it more than that, Carl? <laughs> uh, it's quiet in the sense that, well, let's start with passion. It isn't like flamenco dancing, where you know it's passionate. It isn't like uh, some movie where I love you, honey, sweetie, darling, and incredible embraces and tears, and my beloved, and oh, my good, uh, passionate. Or hatred, when we see it politically, crowds that are passionately down on something or for something. This one is invisible. It's, if you don't have it, now, I don't, I'm not trying to intimidate you. So I don't feel passionate. Do I have to? I'm not eligible for this stuff that he's talking about. Um, I don't know. Maybe love is another word, but somehow or another, eventually, for this to become not just a grim drill, in, out, in, out, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing, in, out, in, out, in, out. <laughs> There's got to be some, some depth. There's some yearning there. There's, some, there's love. Uh, again, not as an ideology, uh, it grows out of the seeing itself. It grows out of the understanding itself. So it's quiet in that sense, in that it's not so visible to others who might walk in here and wonder what we're all up to if they don't know anything about it. It's also a passion, uh, a quiet, in that it's about silence. In a sense, it's a passion for silence. Uh, but somehow there's a dues to be paid. Uh, we hear a lot about the silent mind, stillness, uh, so many different words for it, original nature, true nature, Buddha nature. You know, you've heard them all. I like stillness or the silent mind or emptiness, whatever. Um, at least on this path, you get to it through fully meeting noise. You have to look at all the uh, pyrotechnics, all the floor show that's going on in our mind, come to see it, to know it, and to enable the mind to empty itself of all of its treasured content, a lot of our accumulations that we think of as being me. And as a result, uh, we live in a very tiny realm. In other words, if you haven't had a glimpse of this, and I know a number of you have. Some of you may have without knowing it when the mind gets quiet. Right below the surface, right now, for each one of us here, just below the surface, it's not that far away, it's not far away, is the beginnings of immense silence. We're not in touch with it very much because the mind is so busy, chattering away, loving, hate, you know, whatever your mind's been doing. One of the main things it's been doing is being preoccupied, dominating itself by either the future, ideas about the future, or things that are over, event the past. Okay. As the act of seeing, clear seeing, that's what you're going to be seeing. And so you have to be able to uh, be with what's there. And if what's there is a lot of noise, I don't mean to degrade it. it what's, you know what's there. It's all of, it's me. Me as this, that, and the other, and what's happening to me. But as we learn how to, the art of observation, the mind begins to empty itself of its own content, and you relax into silence. It's not that you break the door down, you, because if you try to break the door down, 
that's noise. Silence is very, very shy. You can't seek it out. It's there. All it asks is that you lay to rest all of the preoccupations that we have. Okay. When we begin to taste silence, if you don't like that word, get some other word, because the word, none of the words will do it justice. Uh, it's in, at first, it's frightening. It's frightening particularly to the mind that has been conditioned to think that what's really real comes out of thought, out of thinking. Many of us get paid. We've had years of education. We've learned how to refine our thinking, how to use it. Uh, we've gotten rewarded not only money, but in, in many other ways as well. And how to let go of that, even temporarily, to let it go into abeyance, just see it, let it do its dance and go into abeyance, uh, it's not so easy to do because we're very invested in it. We impute tremendous authority to thinking and to that quality of mind. And as a result, we're spending our life in a tiny corner. We're plowing, cultivating a very small part of a vast field of consciousness. Once you start to enter into that field and see that the fear is unfounded, it's actually the little me that's terrified. Of course, there's no room for that creature there. Uh, you start to see that it's a treasure. And so there can be a passion. The quiet passion becomes more passionate because you understand uh, the, there's no, I can't put a number on how precious peace is, inner peace. That's why we're here, probably. Okay. There are many, many realms of self-knowing that, are on, that help us come to this silence, relationship, understanding the nature of the body, etc. But I would say one central one is our relationship to time. Psychological time, conceptual time. It's not so much clock time as the time that's made up by the mind, uh, which it then believes in and lives out its life often dominated by. Um, in the this, this uh, notion of psychological time is very, very mysterious uh, and it's been grappled with by the ancients as a, a well-known koan in the Zen tradition. Um, and to get to the, the part where people get tested on it, and I was tested, and I'll just share, I'll give you the right answer, but it won't help you. Uh, in this koan, uh, there's a scholar who had mastered, written immense commentary on the Diamond Sutra, a very important Mahayana Sutra. And it, he was hearing all these Zen teachers talk about, you don't need that stuff, and you know, teaching uh, outside of the words, and just direct pointing to the mind. And he felt like these, these people are, what are they doing? They're defacing Buddha Dharma. And so he put his big commentary in his knapsack and was marching to take on the Zen master. And he stopped at this comfort house, tea house, on the way. And there was an old woman who ran it. She turns out, of course, in the story, I don't know, I wasn't there, to also be a highly developed yogi. And one thing leads to another. And he tells her you know, that he knows everything about the Diamond Sutra and he's going to take on this other master. And he wants to refresh his mind with some tea. 
So then she says, well, uh, the future, this is from the teaching, the future is, it doesn't exist. It just, it's not here yet. The past is already over, and the present is ungraspable. So which mind are you going to which mind are you going to refresh? And he was stumped. Okay, so I had this koan. Actually, if we get this, then I don't have to give the talk, and we can all just <laughs> cool off. Uh, so in in the Rinzai or Linchi Zen tradition. Uh, they have very, very brief, one style, very brief interviews. You come in, there's your koan, what is your koan, and there's an exchange, and if you don't answer correctly, at first it's quite humiliating, the teacher rings the bell, which means out, that's it. You can't start talking about your relationships back home, and, and no, no, no. <laughs> just out. So this happened to me quite a few times. Which mind, do you, with which mind, you, which mind are you going to refresh? In other words, challenging me with that, uh, with that teaching. And finally, I did get an answer that was acceptable. It was simply, in an imaginary way, to completely, totally, and utterly, 100% drink a cup of tea in his presence. Now, I've given you the answer, and then if you go to this teacher, uh, and you do it, they're watching to see if, there's, if it's just nothing but drinking a cup of tea. Just 100% tea-drinking mind. Okay, it's not so easy. And to get through what they think is tea-drinking mind, it seems to take a while. <laughs> okay. Uh, when you get to the sutra, you'll see that it has a lot to do with that. Why don't we start? I don't know how much, but we'll get it started tonight. I think I'll just give a kind of overview and uh, won't be able to do it justice in the short amount of time we have, but at least give you a sense. And I don't know if you consider this a gift or a tedious homework, but the co there'll be a copy of the sutra for you, but not now, because then you'll start thinking. It's when you leave. It's a going away Torture or present? I don't know, depending on how you take it. Okay. Um, one translation of it, an auspicious day, is the one that I favor, although I still don't think it's uh, the best. But the title isn't so important. I think it has to do with learning how to live in, in real time. That cup of tea that I had, not really, it was make-believe, was in real time. It w there was no future in it. There was no past in it. And you'll see here, there are even ways in which we're not fully in the present when we think we're in the present. Because we're busily being somebody, using the present to reinforce being that somebody. Okay. So at the time, uh, an auspicious day, uh, I'll start off, let's say. I've heard that on one occasion, the Blessed One, the Buddha, was staying in Savati at Jetta's Grove, Anathapindaga's monastery, there he addressed the monks. Monks? Yes, Lord, the monks responded. The Blessed One said, Monks, I will teach you the summary and exposition of one who has had an auspicious day. Uh, the more common meaning of auspicious, auspicious, an auspicious day would be uh, it's something in the stars, uh, the, uh, there's some... Good, some omen that points to, or some cosmic event 
and that was considered auspicious. But what this teacher is saying, listen, listen and pay what the Buddha is saying, listen and pay, pay close attention, I will speak. What he's saying is, you're understanding the, the ability of the, refining your understanding of the nature of psychological times, my language, obviously. That, if you're doing that, that's an auspicious day. Or I'll put it in other terms. Um, I studied with a Cambodian teacher named Mahagosananda. Some of you have heard of him. A, a very courageous man who uh, did a lot of peace work in uh, post-war uh, Cambodia. And he would say over and over and over again, many, many times, and every time you saw him laughing, well, I guess, Dharma, it's a question of whether time eats you or you eat time. Okay, that may sound strange. I hope by the end of a few evenings it's clearer. Eat what time eats you is you get lost in, in psychological time, in an imaginary future that's never going to be what you think it's going to be because it's a construction, it's an imagining. Or the past, which is over, it's gone. Um, as you say, Lord, the monks replied, the Blessed One said, I want to give you a feeling for the teaching. Uh, don't worry, just let it sink in, and we'll put it in more ordinary language as much as possible tonight and then uh, later on. And here's what the Buddha said. This is what's auspicious. You shouldn't chase after the past. Or place, let's stay with that one for another. You shouldn't chase after the past. Uh, constantly reviving the past, constantly dredging up the past. Now, here we have to be careful because I've gotten questions which, uh, if, if this were taken literally, uh, we were, and if you did, you'd become what I would call a Buddhist cartoon. That is, you'd be. Uh, Here's what it would be. Let's say you, you hear this. The Buddha said it. You shouldn't chase after the past. Don't revive the past. Okay. And you meet someone for the first time, and you sit down, have a cup of tea, and you're talking things over. Oh, where are you from? Uh, what school did you go to? Uh-uh. I'm a Buddhist. We don't talk about the past. <laughs> Sorry. How about yesterday? No, that's over, too. I can't even, t <laughs> can't even tell you what I did yesterday. It's when the past becomes a kind of craving, an attachment, and is used in certain ways, which I think will become clear as we go on. So you shouldn't chase after the past, keep reviving it, or place expectations on the future, um, hopes on the future, that is excessively uh, putting all kinds of things on the future. Now here, this is again tricky, because uh, Sometimes people need hope. And if you said, nope, you cannot have any hope about the future, uh, sometimes it can be constructive depending on the way it's used. There are certain emotions that are called indeterminate in the Buddha's language. They can be beneficial or not. Uh, regret is another one. That one let, let me take that one. That is, in Buddhist psychology, that's a, the past. Let's say something happened in the past and it's a regret you have. You hurt somebody. You stole something. You committed a crime. 
you uh, did something, you hurt yourself through some stupidity, and you have deep regret over it, and maybe it comes up again and again. Regret, if it's something that is repetitive like that and doesn't lead, well, here's, here's when it's beneficial. You did something that was hurtful to you and for others, and you regret it, and it can be a very deep regret. If you take that regret and use it to learn so that your capacity to live in the present is enhanced, then it's a beneficial use of the past, of regret over something that's over with. If you take that past and just keep chewing on it the way a dog chews on the bone again and again and again, then it's not beneficial. Uh, I think you, you all can, can see what I'm getting at. Uh, let's take a current situation. Uh, after I say it, you'll probably, well, even I may regret it, but uh, I feel the Palestinians should have a state. I know I'm Jewish and all that. Not only that, they should have had it a long time ago. But it's based on these teachings in a certain way. I mean, it's not that I had to read these teachings. Is that what is coming out of, uh, of going on in the Middle East is coming from people who are desperate, hopeless. They don't have hope. They're desperate. I'm not justifying how they've handled that. But let's say the Palestinians were given a state, not all of this, you know, a tentative state, all these things that are delaying the inevitable, but are given an outright state. If that were used to generate hope in the population so that they could rebuild their society or build it for the, for the first time in a way, so that it could have education, health, uh, adequate nourishment, it could be revived so that children had something to hope for, that parents could have hopes for their children, just normal people. Okay. That would be a, a positive use, it would be beneficial. If the future, and this is often the case, that's why the teaching is put here, maybe more often, if the future is put forward and is then used as a way of never dealing with the present, then in this, uh, in this sense it's not beneficial, it's harmful. And it would be better that it didn't happen because it just perpetuates something that's already destructive. Do you see what I'm, how, that, how that works? So it's really subtle uh, when the past is useful and when it isn't. For example, let's take it to our practice. When I hear uh, in exchanges, interviews, and so forth, let's say uh, most people recognize the importance of coming to terms with their fear. Maybe very few of us completely master it so that we're fearless. But there's no question that many, many people who are living right here and now, people like ourselves, have worked on their fear and are not so tyrannized by it anymore, are rather free, freer of it. Now, so that it's important, and most people I meet recognize that. And then perhaps fear comes up, and then there's encouragement. Let's say I might give encouragement. Uh, can you bring mindfulness to it? And then the person, you can see it right away, backs off and says, well, the conditions aren't right just yet for me to look at my fear. Uh, I'm waiting for the conditions to be right. Sometime I, I hope in the future they will be right, and then I have every intention of looking at the fear. They're never going to look at fear. It's just, uh, I don't have hard data, but I've paid attention. And most of the time, th that way, the future is something that uh, isn't taken care of. 
uh, I mean, the present isn't taken care of because rather than face the present, we use the future. We invent a future. That's all it is. We invent a future, and that keeps us from taking a look at the present. It, in a sense, it protects us. Whatever quality, okay, the future, uh, what is past is left behind. The future is as yet unreached. Whatever quality is present, you clearly see right here, right here. Now, what this is trying to say is uh, each arisen state, presently arisen state, that is, it's the stuff of our vipassana practice. That is, uh, in addition, don't get caught up in the future. It's not, there is none, in the sense that I'm using it. And don't uh, keep revi reviving the past and getting lost there. Um, be with each state as it arises. Does that sound familiar? No matter what that state is. And that could be a state of the past. It could be a state of the future. That is, a mind state. That's not a problem. It's not that we now have banished under no conditions are we allowed to think about the future or the past. You can say that, but you know it won't work. So that when the mind starts fabricating something about the future, if you can just see it as uh, something that's made in the mind and watch it do its thing, it's benign, it's helpless, uh, it's not harmful. And it just falls away, period. If you identify with it and make, you, in other words, you imbue it with a reality which you then have to deal with, and which typically pulls you away from the present, you no longer practice it. Okay. This section, we'll go into this in detail, has to do with selfing, where we use what happens in the present moment as the materials to nourish our sense of self. You know that project? We often use the future and the past. These are the building blocks, the materials, the nourishment, which the mind can use. And again, it can be okay to talk about a past. We do have a past. And we can even have visioning. Now that's a term we use to kind of get a sense. We do that at CIMC. We do it here. Try to make an intelligent guess about the direction IMS should go in. But we know what we're doing. It's not, uh, we're not lost in a dream, or we're trying not. We're not trying. We hope we're not. Our feet are firmly planted in the present based on what we can discern. And we're attempting to make intelligent decisions that will positively affect the future. Okay. So, uh, but much of our life is spent turning present states that arise in the mind, turning that into me, mine. We ad identify with it. This, I think the, at least these words are familiar to you, I hope. So, whatever quality is present, you clearly see it right here, right here. Not taken in, unshaken, and that's how you develop the heart. Not taken in means uh, you don't, it's just exactly that. You're not fooled into totally identifying with every mind state that presents itself to you as being you. And there's something powerful in us that loves to do that. Whether it's suffering or wonderful, it's still me. It's that story unfolding. And the practice is a gentle but unrelenting, as you know, attempt to begin to wean us, to re-educate us, to begin to see that that is what we've been doing all along and it hasn't worked. It has not brought any real fulfillment. It's brought a tremendous amount of suffering for us and the people in our lives. 
And so, okay. Ardently doing what should be done today, for who knows, tomorrow, death. There's no bargaining with mortality and mortality's mighty hoard. Okay, so death is brought in, as is often in the Buddhist teaching, to awaken us to how precious the present moment of being alive is. That's its main, it's not, uh, that's it certainly here. And so everything that's being said here, this is to intensify it. Death itself, I've done, talked to people, a fair number of people about aging, sickness, and death. And one of the things I've discovered is that mostly when you look closely and see if it's so for you, when people are very, very frightened of death, what they're frightened of is the idea of death. They're frightened of the notion of their own death. The truth is, the day will come when we actually will be dying. It'll be a moment just like this. In this sense, not special. It'll be real, in real time. We will actually be dying. Everyone who's been born has done that. Maybe you'll be lucky. I was telling... <laughs> I was, no, the, I was telling Corrado, he didn't know this. There's an Italian proverb. Uh, everyone, uh, everyone, must, uh, everyone who was born must die, perhaps even me. Uh, isn't it a little like that? You know, that childish mind still keeps, or at least extending it a little longer. It's not going to be for a while. Okay? But what I've discovered is a lot of the fear is exactly of a futuristic idea about certainly something that's inevitable, but it's the idea that's driving us crazy, that's tyrannizing us. If you see that, it falls away, and you can take care of the only thing you ever have, which is now. Living happens now. It's always been that way. It's always going to keep being. There's no place else for it to happen. Nothing else exists. That's the mystery of it. Um, okay. Ardently doing what should be done today, for who knows, tomorrow, death. There's no bargaining with mortality and mortality's mighty hoard. Whoever lives thus ardently this translation says relentlessly, I don't like that word, but you know, with commitment, both day and night has truly had an auspicious day. So says the peaceful sage. Uh, we'll go into that in more detail. But I just wanted to at least set the stage for it. Let me leave you with some um, practical It'll just be a, we'll just go a little bit over. Corrado, I'm going to go a few minutes over. We go through this dance every year, right? <laughs> <laughs> what is Corrado going to say? No, you can't go. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you know, pseudo-politeness. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Take this on as a practice. You already know enough. Finally, the practice is again and again and again, come back to now. Start to notice, even the simple thing like in-breath, out-breath. You may see that one, sometimes it's mainly the out-breath. Uh, it's mainly the future that's taking you away, worrying about some future time. A lot of your questions in, in, were about that. Some of you are bogged down in the past, pulling you away from the breath, pulling you away from the breath. Now, that information is not worthless because it's pointing often to something that needs to be done in the world that you're not attending to. And that's why it keeps coming back, especially future. 
again and again and again keeps taking you away from the breathing when you're preoccupied with some future. Very, very often I found there's something that you've been doing, a way of living, it's time to stop. And you know it. Do it. Or it's time to start doing something that's constructive. And you're not doing it. And so it keeps knocking on your door. And you can sit from now until kingdom come. I don't really know what kingdom come means, but (laughs) (laughs) it's uh, part of my conditioning in the culture. Is that enlightenment? Okay. Here's this practical piece of advice, because I hear that tomorrow is going to be very, very hot, hotter than today. Maybe it won't be correct, but let's... So here's a teaching that I've given very, very often. Some of you have heard it. Uh, Try to hear it with fresh ears, because when it's hot tomorrow, it will be hot for the first time for you tomorrow, when it happens tomorrow. It's not an idea, although it's an idea now. Again, it's a very, very, very practical, helpful uh, Zen teaching. A teacher, I'm going to paraphrase to cover some ground rapidly. A teacher asks a student, how do you practice when it's very hot and when it's very cold? And there have been many, I'm not sure in the the exact answer of the koan, but uh, it's something like, uh, over the centuries, different different um, responses have been given. Uh, Like, kill hot, kill cold, doesn't sound very Buddhist. Or, uh, hot Buddha, cold Buddha. what what's trying to be, what when we say kill hot kill cold what it means is kill the concept hot kill the concept cold and when it says hot buddha cold buddha and then there's an elaboration on that and what it says is and i think this is the key when it's hot the buddha sweats when it's cold the buddha shivers well what did you think it's not a statue he was a person but here's the difference he's just shivering He's just sweating. With us, I don't know, last retreat, I was on the retreat last year, it was so pleasant, and uh, I, you know, I, I think I'm just going to do retreats in the fall and winter. No, the winter's too cold, just the fall and spring, and, uh, <laughs> and feelings, or look, it happened to me today. I did the loop at lunchtime, right after lunch, uh, because I'm insane, temporarily insane. But anyway, I did the loop and at a decent pace. And I saw that the mind kept, for some strange reason, I was sweating profusely, for some strange reason, the mind kept coming to that cold shower that awaited me at the end of the journey. Well, you know, I I have to try to live my own teaching, so I had to come back to just walking, just walking and sweating and brushing flies away and starting to, and thoughts coming up, you fool, you should have, Corrado told you just, don't make it a full walk, he did. You know, he said, you know, just take a partial walk, it's enough, you know. But macho man has got to go all the way around, you know, the whole thing. Uh, so the practice for me was coming back to just walking, just sweating, and the mind was doing all kinds of things in the past, especially the future, longing for just the pleasantness of showering and putting on fresh clothes and just being happy again. So tomorrow, if it's hot, Take it from moment to moment, in the now, in the now, in the now. Life proceeds now by now by now, here now, here now, here now, in this place, in this time, in this place. And watch the mind, because the mind can make it a a torment for you. Then you're not just a hot Buddha. You're tormented by the hot. Or 
you can at least relieve the mind of its heat, its torment, and just deal with the discomfort of being very, very hot. Okay, a bit of walking meditation. Let's have a few moments of silence. beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. And may all of us be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.